subject of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is very, very important in our history uh, in that God began blessing Abraham and Isaac and promised that Israel would multiply and become as the sands of the sea. But it wasn't really until Jacob that that multiplication actually began because even though Abraham had more than one son, God only used Isaac. And though uh, Isaac had more than one son, God only used uh, Jacob uh, through him. Now through Jacob, we have 12 sons that God is going to make nations of. So the multiplication began with Jacob. His name was changed to Israel because it was a promise to Israel that these things would occur. It is ironic in a way that people who call themselves Jews today uh, think that Abraham was a Jew, and they think that Moses was a Jew, and that anybody important was a Jew. Well, the Jew didn't even come into existence until Jacob's son Judah <laughs> had children, and they were called Jews. Just one tribe, Judah. So Abraham was not a Jew. He was a man of God, but he wasn't a Jew. And there were no Israelites until uh, Jacob became Israel and his sons became then of Jacob or Israelites. That's where all the tribes of Israel, including Judah, began. So Jacob is a very pivotal uh, one of our ancestors and our forefathers that uh, Paul mentioned in Hebrews 11 that we are to look to in this end time. And we'll see a couple of good instances today where uh, the Bible refers. Of course, when you start talking about Israel, it's mentioned thousands of times in the Bible, uh, Israel and Jacob. So we can't cover all of that, but we're looking at the character study of these men and the actual acts of their lives, and then much of that would carry on down until now. So it becomes important to us who are living here at the end time. So we got through chapter 33 there where uh, Jacob was fearful of Esau and uh, they had their encounter and Esau actually was friendly with him on that particular instance. But Jacob feared. Now why did he fear? Well, because of the things he had done to Esau that made Esau hate him. Uh, Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous are bold as lions. But we find Jacob here was not bold in this particular instance. I mean, he had on his conscience and in his memory what he had done that had caused that hate to come from Esau. So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't real, he wasn't aggressive here and bold as a lion. In fact, he began to do all he could to try to protect his wives and his family and his people and his animals because he was afraid Esau would uh, be angry and aggressive with him. So I think we can learn from that that we need to be righteous. And if we are, then we won't have these conscience problems and fears and doubts because we will uh, have confidence that because of the way we comport ourselves, God will have mercy on us and will protect us. And the, the more we disobey God, the more we have to fear, not really of men, but of Him.
He says, don't let them be your fear and your dread, but fear me. Because God could either spare or he could let Jacob be taken down here depending on what he decided. But he had promised to Abraham, he had promised to Isaac, and he kept that promise through Jacob. So Esau did not kill him or take his family. Uh, and God has called us here in the end time to do a work for him as well. And he tells us over and over in the prophecies not to fear, but to serve him and fear him. Now, we can serve him uh, with less fear and indecisiveness if we are obedient to him. Doesn't that make sense? that we would be more in his good graces the more we please him and do the things that he wants us to do. So there's a whole chapter in chapter 33 that we discussed some last week that uh, is a vital lesson for us because Esau, again, is coming against Jacob, and we're members of Jacob. Uh, the whole book of Obadiah is about that and how they will take over uh, and break our yoke, or Jacob's yoke, uh, Ephraim's yoke, from off their neck. And there is much there to be feared unless you fear God and obey Him. And this nation is not fearing, o God, and fearing God and obeying Him. And as a result, they have much to fear, and those prophecies will be fulfilled. So it can be different for us than it is for the rest of the people of this nation. And we know that ahead of time, and we need to do our part to ensure that God will account us worthy to be protected and help us to do the things that he has revealed to us need to be done here in the end time. So let's pick it up from there in chapter 34. Uh, remember I mentioned the daughter Dinah was mentioned when uh, Jacob's children were talked about. Uh, the only daughter mentioned, I'm sure there were other daughters, but she was mentioned in particular because she would become uh, important to the story in Jacob and his son's lives, and even down until the end time, the event that is described here in chapter 34 would still be uh, on the table, which we'll see as we go. So Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she took to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. So she started making friends with the, the daughters of the people with whom Jacob had settled in that area. Now, what does the New Testament tell us? In a sense, it's a quote from right here, where we're not to be involved with the world, we're not to make friends of the world, that we are to be apart from them only as ambassadors for Christ, and that our lives are to be separate from the peoples of this world because we will tend to do what they do, and our fellowship is with our brethren and with God the Father, not with those who are not involved, and even those who are involved, if they do not follow God's ways, he says, have nothing to do with them, because they can affect you. Well, some things happened here. Now, had she stayed home and associated with family, the thing that happened to her would not have happened. But she went out to see or visit with or make girlfriends or friends among the daughters of the land. Uh, a mistake. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, 
prince of the country, so this was the ruler's son, saw her, uh, he liked what he saw. So he took her and lay with her and defiled her. Now, it doesn't say whether she was a willing participant in this or not. Uh, and in one sense, that does not matter. Uh, if she was an unwilling uh, participant, that means obviously she was raped, which is a no-no in any society, really, uh, unless it's Muslim, maybe. Uh, and if she did participate, then the laws of God would have had her stoned for so doing. So, in a sense, it's neither here nor there. But anyway, uh, he had that relationship with her. And uh, he became emotionally involved with her in verse 3, uh, loved her and spoke kindly to the damsel, and spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this damsel to wife. <laughs> I want to marry her. Uh, work it out so I can have her. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. So the story got back to Jacob. Now, Jacob does not make a comment here, uh, nor does God. Now, God makes a comment later on, we'll see, but he doesn't comment right here. He just tells the story. So he heard that. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. So he was remained quiet. And maybe they talked it over uh, to some degree, but uh, he did not really get involved. This, this is a story about his sons, and that will echo through time, as we shall see. The sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. So whether she was willing or unwilling, it shouldn't have been done. He even tells us not to marry the world but that we are to marry only those of like mind uh, who are converted, who, who are in agreement, and not to marry those with whom you cannot walk because you are not agreed. So God makes it very clear on these things. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. When people get emotionally involved, uh, they'll do almost anything to get what they want, it seems. So he was willing to do almost anything, we'll find, to get what he wanted. So uh, he says, uh, Hamor said, make you marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters to you. Let's work this out so we can all intermarry. And you can dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. You can dwell and trade and get you possessions therein. So uh, it comes back to the things that motivate people the most, it seems, and it always turns out to be sex and money for the most part. And Shechem said to her father uh, and to her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what you shall say to me, I will give. He says, I want this girl so bad, whatever you say, I'll do it. Uh, ask me never so much, dowry and gift, and I will give according as you'll say, but give me the damsel to wife. I'll pay any price. Well, the sons of Jacob answered, Shechem and Hamor, in a deceitful way, and said, because he had, def uh, and said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister, here's what they said. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised. Now, they weren't asking for dowry, weren't asking for money. 
They says, you need to be circumcised because our people are all circumcised and we can't marry the uncircumcised. And that is true. They were not to do that, just as we are not to spiritually marry the uncircumcised today. So, he said, they said to him, then, what, then will we give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we'll become one people. We'll intermarry, and we'll just get along, and everything will be happy, happy. But if you will not hearken to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will leave. Well, Shechem and Hamor didn't want to see them go and take Dinah, so their words pleased them. This is something we can do. They're not even asking us for a lot of money or anything. We just have to be circumcised. And then we can marry all of their daughters we want to. So it sounded like a good deal to them. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. Now he must have, because I'm sure for grown men, circumcision was not a delightful thing. But the delight was in the daughter. So he was willing to pay that price. And he was more honorable in all the house of his father. So he said, I'll do it. Now, Hamor and Shechem, his son, came into the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, now they had another bridge to cross. Father and son agreed to be circumcised, but now they had to deal with all the men of the city. And that must have been a tough sell. So they said, these men are peaceable with us. They kind of started out trying to make this sound good before they dropped the other shoe on them. It says, therefore let them dwell in the land and trade therein. Now notice what he uses on them. Okay? For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives and let us give them our daughters. So he's saying, hey, all their ladies will be available to us. We'd be pleased to have them. We'll be allies with them. And you can have their women. Okay? That's not the only thing he offers. He'll offer one more thing. Only herein will the men consent to us for to dwell with us to be one people if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. So in one sense, I think he calls on their manhood here. These guys got circumcised. Are you men or mice? Squeak up. Uh, are you willing to do what they did? Uh, is that too much for you? Or are you not man enough for it? may have been partly what was implied here. Anyway, he goes on then to make a promise. Shall not their cattle and their substance, their things, their wealth, and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. So he says, uh, all you got to do is be circumcised and you can have their women and their money. Sex and money again. That's what it generally comes down to among people. And unto Hamar and unto Shechem, his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city, and every male was circumcised, everybody that came in and out of the gates. I guess they set up a circumcision machine right there at the gate. And to Hamar and to Shechem, his son, oh, I read that, Verse 25, and it came to pass on the third day when they were sore. <laughs> they weren't moving around very well. I think I recounted at one time, I, I knew a guy who was a college student in Pasadena uh, who had some kind of problems, I don't know what, but 
he went down and got circumcised, and uh, he didn't hide for several days. He went ahead and limped around campus, and he, he walked very slowly and gingerly. And, uh, of course, that prompted questions about what the problem was, which he was somewhat loath to talk about. He'd have been better off just gone and hid and had the flu or something until he got over it. But he was quite sore. So when it says this, I've, I've seen that with my own eyes of what happens to a grown man when he's circumcised. Anyway, when they were very sore and could barely get around, the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took each man his sword and came upon the city and slew all the males. Every man, probably a boy that was there, uh, they killed. So, they didn't keep their promise very well. Now, all the sons were not involved in this, just Simeon and Levi. And that will be commented on later, when God gives his judgment of this. So, they slew Hamor and his son, and all the men of the city. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sisters. So Simeon and Levi did the killing, but apparently not just them, but maybe all the sons came and took the sheep and the oxen and the asses and everything of value that was there. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took their captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. So the children, I don't know whether they killed the boys for sure, they might have spared them since they were small, but certainly the girls they kept alive and just literally spoiled everything. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. Now, he was probably pleased in one sense that his daughter Dinah had been avenged. And yet, on the other hand, he had another fear and that fear is the one that he expressed. He said, you've made me smell bad or look bad to all the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? So their excuse and their justification was, hey, we were just avenging our sister. But Jacob was worried about dying over this, was his biggest concern, apparently. Not so much Dinah and the vengeance as uh, as the, the danger that could come because of vengeful peoples that may have been related to this and other Gentiles that he feared would come kill. Now, is that... How did God deal with that? Chapter 35 is interesting in that context and how what God does. Now, he does have something to say about Simeon and Levi later, as I said, but he, remember, he had chosen Jacob and renamed him Israel, and he was going to work through Jacob and his sons to fulfill prophecies clear through the end time and forevermore in the kingdom of God. So, what occurred here uh, would come back to haunt Simeon and Levi, but not Jacob and the rest of the family. And it would only be a limited problem that would occur to Simeon and Levi. Uh, God was not pleased, as we shall see. Anyway, let's see God's reaction here and his faithfulness in keeping his promise. Now, Jacob, 
Isaac, Abraham, all made mistakes. And yet God uh, blessed them sometimes in spite of themselves, as I said last week. And that's something that we need to keep in mind, that uh, God doesn't bless us just because we're righteous. He blesses us because He called us, and He's working with us, and He's trying to save us. And He will, ultimately, most of us. But in the meantime, He has put us through chastening, as He is about to put this whole nation through chastening. And He's decimated the church, and decimated this little one even. Uh, because He wants us to serve Him with all our hearts, and not ourselves. Not land, not homes, not what we want, or anything else, but to serve Him. And put Him first, and His goals and His purposes. This land was established here for his goals and purposes, and that's why it was established from the very beginning, that it would never be deeded to uh, individuals lest they sell to outsiders. So we were to do all we could to protect it from subdivision and selling to outsiders. And we see a lot of that uh, bias right here uh, with Dinah and with the scriptures that Paul reiterated there about it, and not being involved with those of the land, but to only be involved here with God's people. So if these people who are trying to now get possession of the land get it, there will be for sale signs up, and the world will come in and will pollute what we have tried to keep separate for God's purposes. Now Jacob kind of got the message, uh, we'll see. God said to Jacob, all right, you've been here long enough. Go to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar to God that appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So he said, uh, these events here are done. I want you to get on with your worship of me and with fulfilling what I have given you to do. So he says, you go and make an altar to me and serve me. Now, Jacob kind of got that message because he turned around and said to his family uh, and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you. So they had begun to adopt strange gods. Even as we, as members of Worldwide here in the end time, a spiritual Jacob, began to put other things ahead of God, whether materiality or jobs or those we would marry or whatever we let get between us and God and his word. So he says, put all that away from you. Be clean. Change your garments. So he said, uh, we're going to go worship God. We're going to make an altar to God, and you need to change your habits. I'm going to keep your thumb there. I'm going to turn back to Isaiah 52, which we've read many times and probably will read many more times. Isaiah 52. From Isaiah 40 on, he is talking to this work. Uh, when Herbert Armstrong's was finished in, Heze in uh, Isaiah 39 as a type of Hezekiah. Uh, and we became eunuchs in the land, unable to accomplish anything as, as uh, God said Hezekiah's sons would be. And nothing is being accomplished, but a new message started in Isaiah 40. And it continues here. Chapter 52, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. He calls them garments of white in other places. The bride is told to put on her uh, garments of righteousness there in, Isaiah, in uh, 
Revelation 21 and 8, is it 8, 19, wherever it is, uh, we're told to do that. Jerusalem of the church, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. So there it echoes what happened in Dinah's case. God says, you're to be clean, you're not to be dealing with and a part of the uncircumcised. Only those who are in agreement with God's way. So he says, shake yourself loose from that. And then he tells us, down in uh, verse 11, depart, depart, which he tells us in uh, Zechariah 2, to get away from this world. Same thing in Micah 4, get out of the city and go to the wilderness. So he says, get out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So that's the same advice that Jacob gave his family and which Isaiah gives to us, Isaiah being an end time uh, a prophecy of right now and of what is going on right now. So that is what we are to do. So should we look to our father Jacob? He gave us the same, gave his family the exact same advice that Isaiah gives us today. And that Paul the Apostle and John the Apostle gave us in the epistles and in the book of Revelation. To come out from her, my people, there in Revelation 18.4, that you be not partakers of her plagues and her sins. So what Jacob said here has echoed through the centuries, through the millenniums for that matter, until today. So he says, let's go up to Bethel, and I'll make an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. He says, I'm going to remember what God has done for me. Do we remember the things that God did to call us out of this world, to help us understand His truths, and how He led us by miracles to the point of understanding and baptism? and how he led us by understanding, and I will have to say I think miracles, to even come here where we are today. Because there is a purpose in our being here that God established and which he will fulfill. We do our part, we'll be the ones used to fulfill it. So clean yourselves up, change your garments, let's go worship God. Isn't that the message we've been hearing here for the last 21 years? Well, not here until 2000, but it's what started in 96. And turn to God with all our hearts, as Jeremiah implores us. So they gave to Jacob all the strange gods. They gave them up, handed them over, their earrings and their ears, which were apparently part of their worship uh, as gods, because it isn't wrong to have earrings. It isn't wrong to have jewels. God, Christ is going to put earrings in the ears of his uh, bride, Ezekiel 16. So it wasn't the earrings per se that was wrong, it was the meaning that they had attached to them. You know, people make jewelry with, with crucifixes, they make jewelry with hearts, they make jewelry with all kinds of things, some of them pagan, uh, today. Earrings per se are not wrong, but what are they shaped like? What do they mean to people? That can be wrong. So that was the case here. So they gave up their gods, and Jacob hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. So he buried them, got them out of sight. 
Well, we should be burying our false gods, getting them out of our sight, sending them away, asking God to rebuke them. So, verse 5, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob was wrong, wasn't he? He says, because of what you two sons did here, the people of the land are going to come after us and kill us all. Well, God had something different in mind, didn't he? God was with them and put fear upon them so that they didn't kill Jacob and his sons. So the promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob were upheld by God in spite of the transgression that occurred there and the murder of those people. <clears throat> so Jacob came to Lutz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. He was changed from Luz to Bethel later on, or house of God, or place of God. And he built an altar, and uh, they buried Rebecca, who died, or no, her nurse died, and they buried her there under an oak and uh, called it the place of the oak. So God appeared to Jacob then in verse 9 and blessed him. Verse 10, God said to him, your name is Jacob. He reiterates that his name will be called Israel, not Jacob anymore. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Well, that's the first thing we need to understand about God. He is God Almighty. He has all might, all power, above everything else. And when we commit our lives to Him, we should commit them entirely and completely. Uh, there was one king that even died because he sought to the physicians instead of to God. Well, there are many examples where we impugn the sacrifice of Christ when we hypocritically get anointed and then turn to the doctors. He says, I am your healer. I am the one who heals you. If you'll pray, pray the prayer of faith, you will be healed. But now we've gotten to the place in the church that we've forgotten that instruction. So we... We have put those stripes on Christ by our bad diets, our bad living habits, our uh, wrong kind of living, and we've become a very sick and afflicted people in this end time. But we tend to give God lip service and maybe get anointed because it's a physical thing we're told to do. But we forget the spirit and the force and that God is God Almighty and He says we're our healer, He's our healer, and He is a jealous God. We need to understand that God is God Almighty. And we are His sons, His servants, His slaves, and we have given our lives to Him. Now, if He chooses to let us die, that's on Him. But if we're faithful and serve Him, our ticket to the kingdom of God will be preserved. Now, whether our life on this earth is preserved is neither here nor thou. My sister had a good view of that when she was dying of cancer at 61 or 2, whatever it was, recently. And we discussed it more than once, that, hey, it doesn't matter whether you live 30 or 90 years on this earth. What difference does that make? It's just a short segment of time that stops. Whether you're in the kingdom of God forevermore is what counts. That's why it's important to recognize that He is God Almighty in every aspect of our lives. That's the kind of faith and belief that we are to come to have.
it's not easy to achieve, but that's the goal and the purpose. So I'm not here trying to be judgmental. I'm trying to urge us to recognize Almighty God for what He is. And that's what Jacob was doing here. And when God did appear to him, he came to bless him and said, I'm God. And he said, Then be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of you, and kings shall come out of your loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to you, I will give it, and to your seed after you will I give the land. I ask you, where are we? <laughs> we're his seed. Where are we? We're in the land of Ephraim, the original promised land. Uh, God called us out of the greater Ephraim and from around the world, really, into the church. And now he has established us here in the original promised land before it was ever expanded. God has done nothing with the church, spiritual Israel, in the end time, in the nation that they call Israel or Judah in the Middle East today. There was never even a local church established there under Herbert Armstrong. God's presence has not been in that land. Where did he call his people Israel and his church? In the southwestern United States, beginning in Pasadena, a city of much traffic, the L.A. Basin. This is the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's why we're here today. We are sitting in the original promised land. Is God able to fulfill his promises? Is he God Almighty or not? And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him, and, God, and Jacob set up a pillar where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. So he recognized God's presence, uh, and also uh, the place where he had had the, the dream of the stairs and had the pillar stone. Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him the house of God, Bethel. And that's where the temple eventually was built, was at Bethel, next to Jerusalem, uh, the house of God. Anyway, they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way come to Ephrath, or Ephrathah. Rachel, Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. Uh, Ephraim and Ephrath are, uh, have the same root meaning. So Ephrath uh, was there nearby where this had occurred, near Bethel, part of the promised land. And we are the land of Ephraim today, Britain being Manasseh. But all the tribes were here in the original promised land before the whole nation or the whole continent basically was given to Israel or to Ephraim. Anyway, Rachel had hard labor, and as she was dying, she, she did die, it says, that she called his name Benoni, which means uh, the son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means uh, a prince of God or uh, the God of Bethel. He named him after the God where the house of God in Bethel was. So he dedicated this son to God or the house of God. 
So anyway, Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrathah, or Ephraim, which is Bethlehem. That's where Christ was born. And he was truly the Prince of God. Ephraim means fruitful, and we'll find out later it means doubly fruitful. So Jacob set a pillar there, and it's there to this day, and then he reiterates which of sons were born to which of the women, whether they were wives or concubines. Uh, and the two that Rachel had, the wife of his, of his true love, were Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph will become the most prominent of all the sons of Jacob. So chapter 36 then goes into uh, Esau and Edom. Uh, Edom is of Esau. And they were called, their, their rulers were called dukes, or uh, in Hebrew, chiefs. Interesting that the Indian tribes of this land uh, called their leaders chiefs. Uh, many of them may have been uh, from the seed of e <laughs> You get brown from black, white, and yellow is the only places brown can come from. There was not a brown race uh, among Noah's sons. Anyway, we won't go into that because the story here is not just of the story, but of the uh, of Jacob himself. So anyway, in 37, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And then it shows the generations of Jacob and goes into the story of Joseph, so we won't get into that today. That comes later. So let's go on to chapter 46. Uh, the ensuing chapters here are about primarily about the story of Joseph. Uh, chapter 46 shows that Jacob, now called Israel, took his journey with all he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And there God spoke again to Israel, and when God speaks to you, here I am. All ears and eyes and, and emotions uh, on deck, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Fear not to go down into Mitzrayim, for I will there make of you a great nation. Even as he tells us that we are to leave our homes and our land and our relatives and come out here and dwell in the wilderness and he will be with us, and we don't need to fear. But he is going to do a great work and wonder. Someone reminded me of the scripture just the other day, where he says he will do his strange work. And I, I love that verse, because what God does around Zion in the original promised land is going to be such an absolute stunning revelation to the whole world that it will make crossing the Red Sea a distant memory, and he says it will be so dramatic that you won't even remember the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is the biggest thing that is reiterated, repeated, and talked about in the Bible. I mean, that's a landmark thing where God parted the waters and brought them through and saved them from the world around them, or Mitzrayim, which represents the world in sin. He brought them out. And here he is going to bring out 10% of spiritual Israel, his church, and use them to absolutely confound the world. And no one in this world, primarily but us, know where the original promised land was. There are a few Mormons who kind of get the idea, but they, for the most part, still think it's in Missouri, not out here. 
So there are very few who understand the full and the true implications of what is going on. Probably not more than a hundred people on earth really grasp it. And I'm, there are more, there may be that many that know about it. Possibly. But I don't think there's more than twenty that really get it. So he tells us the same story in Micah 4 and in Isaiah 52 in Isaiah 48, and in Revelation 18, uh, to don't fear, go where I tell you to go. In this case, he was to go down into Egypt. Most of the time, God said, don't go to Egypt. But even with Christ as a babe, he wanted his parents to go down into Mitzriam or Egypt. Why? Not for truly for protection, because that was the world. But Christ came to live in this world as an ambassador for his Father and as an example to us. So, symbolically, he needed to go there, <laughs> right in the middle of it, uh, and not to be part of it, but to come back out of it, and not to imbibe of it while he was there as a child. So he tells them, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds. And there will I nourish you, for yet there are five years of famine, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. And he promised him that he would, somewhere along here, uh, that he would bring his children out of there at a later date. So Jacob went there, and he had to remain there, and his people remained there for 430 years and came out the self-same day that they had gone in, which is probably, was it not, Passover. That's when they were released from Egypt, was that on Passover night. And they began the march out. So 430 years later. So Passover is a very, very important date in the history of Israel. And I will not doubt that it will again come into play here in this end time. Seems to be the case in some scriptures I read. All right, let's go down to uh, chapter 47. Uh, here Joseph had gone to Pharaoh and told him that uh, his father and his brothers were coming and introduced him to uh, the Pharaoh and so on. And there were blessings that went back and forth and so on. <coughs> so let's leave that and go to chapter 48 and pick up the end of Jacob because there is much in the next two chapters here, 48 and 49, that have to do with things in the end time. Chapter 48, it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, your father's sick and Joseph understood that it was a sickness probably unto death because he gathered up Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons, and went to see his father. So it wasn't, it wasn't told your dad has a cold. He was told your dad's in serious situation. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it the way he did it. Anyway, one told Jacob and said, Behold, your son Joseph comes to you. So Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. So he knew he was on his deathbed. But he gathered himself up and used the energy that he had left to sit up. That's not what God tells us to do there in Isaiah 52 as well. He says, sit up. 
don't let uh, the world walk on you anymore, but sit up. Don't let them tread on you. So Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, later named Bethel. So he's reiterating the story here. He wants to be sure that Joseph has very uh, prominent in his mind who God is and what God had done in the past. So he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. Now we're going to read in a little bit uh, what would occur to all the different sons in the latter days, the days that we are today in. And when he says, I'm going to make you fruitful and give this land, uh, we'll find that that carries over into his dissertation about where the twelve sons would be and what would be their future. And we'll find that Ephraim and Manasseh uh, were very, very much uh, a part of what he, he just told Joseph here about the land and the possession and how he would be fruitful. We'll see that in a little bit. Now the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. So he says, these two I'm picking out of all my grandsons. Just like Reuben and Simeon were mine and just like you were mine, these two sons are going to be mine. These two are going to be the leaders. They're the ones that are going to primarily carry my name. And it was through Joseph, who was his chosen son, that he had his two chosen sons, grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it was through Joseph that the blessings of God would primarily come, not through the other sons. They had some warts and issues uh, so did Joseph, so did uh, Ephraim Manasseh, but perhaps not to the extent of the others, and they would be the leaders. In fact, God says that Reuben would no longer be the firstborn in Jeremiah 31, but that Ephraim was now his firstborn. So God changed the birth order, changed the birthright, changed the inheritance from Reuben to Ephraim, not even Manasseh in that case, but specifically Ephraim. So when he says, these two are mine, he knew what he was talking about. He knew the panoply of history and how things would work out. And your issue, your sons, which you begat after them, shall be yours, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. Uh, not just Joseph then, but Ephraim and Manasseh would be named the inheritors. Even as Jeremiah said, Ephraim had become the firstborn. And Jacob here will place Ephraim above Manasseh, though Manasseh was the firstborn. So that was done clear back here, and Jeremiah simply uh, reiterates that. He says, It is for me when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan. I buried her in Ephrath with the same as Bethlehem. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and says, Who are these? <laughs> well, he knew very well, but he's saying, or, or uh, emphasizing, who these are. Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place, 
And he says, bring them, I pray you, to me, and I will bless them. So he, he makes it a formalized situation. He knew who they were, but he says, who are they? And then Joseph says, this is who they are. Okay, bring them here, and I will bless them. Let's get this formal, let's get it straight, and let's get it done. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. Uh, that is a natural occurrence. Uh, that occurs to a lot of older people. And he brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face. He thought Joseph was dead and gone after his brothers threw him in the pit and got the bloody coat. And lo, God has showed me also your sons. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees. They were apparently still pretty young. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. So he wanted the right hand of Jacob on Manasseh since he was the firstborn. <coughs> Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, or knowing what he was doing. He, he crossed his hands, crossed his arms, and put them opposite of what uh, Joseph had presented them. For Manasseh was the firstborn, so, but he knew what he was doing. So he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long to this day. So he acknowledges that once he had been converted and repented and committed his life to God, that God had seen to him and guided and led him in spite of his own ups and downs. God had brought him to that place. The angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads. Now he admits here that he was unworthy, that he had redeemed from, been redeemed from all evil, even his own and that which had been perpetrated on him. So he said, Let my name be named on them, Israel, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The word there is middle terrain. Jerusalem was the middle terrain in the middle of the earth. It had a, a former and a hinder sea, which the Jerusalem and the nation of Israel today does not have but the one where I believe the true original Jerusalem is, or was, and still is, has a huge lake bed on both sides of it, one on one side and one on the other, the middle terrain, the terrain in the middle of the sea. <clears throat> and that's where God's headquarters is going to be. Anyway, uh, Joseph saw that his father uh, laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said, Not so, my father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Now, he wasn't literally the firstborn, but uh, Jacob understood he was to become that. So put your right hand on his head. And his father refused. I know it. I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Uh, 
or be full of, or a fullness, or fill there. A mistake was made there, I think, by Herbert Armstrong, who saw the British Empire and saw it spread around the world, and he thought that was the multitude of nations spoken of here. But which has become the greater of the brothers? The United States not only dominates a few nations, as Britain did, but has dominated almost the entire earth here in the end time, and has become much greater than Britain ever was, both in the sea and in the air. And it is also a multitude of nations. Do we grasp and comprehend that the uh, colonies, as established, were separate entities, separate states, separate nations, if you will. And later they combined to become a multitude of nations, ultimately 50 of them. So a multitude of nations combined as one. And he also said in Deuteronomy 33:17 that there would be tens of thousands of Ephraimites as compared to thousands of Manassites. Well, look at Britain and look at uh, the United States or Ephraim today. We have 330, 40, 50 million people, and Great Britain is not 10% of that, I think, or maybe close to it altogether. So which has had, which is the greatest by far in population uh, and greater than the other? It's this nation. And which has been the most blessed, which has the greatest physical blessings and is double fruitful by comparison? This nation by far over Britain, far wealthier, far more natural resources, far bigger, far more people, uh, blessed in many, many ways more than Great Britain ever has been. And we'll read that here in a moment. Anyway, he blessed them, saying, And you shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said, Ephraim before Manasseh. He would receive greater blessings. So Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. So they were still in the land of Mitzrayim or Egypt, the world. And he says, You will be brought again to the original promised land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brethren, which I took out of your hand, the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So he gave double inheritance to Ephraim and to Manasseh, making it 13 who would inherit instead of just 12. Okay, then Jacob called to his sons. <clears throat> After this blessing had been conferred, he called all his sons together. He says, Gather that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. So he was looking beyond his own life, he was looking beyond the lives of these men. He was looking to the last days of what would befall them, where they would be here at the end. This is a prophecy that goes on down through thousands of years until today. These are the last days. So he told them, he told them, listen up, gather together and hear. <clears throat> Reuben was his firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power, so they would have some strong characteristics, but unstable as water, 
you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So uh, Jacob had not said anything that's recorded at the time that Reuben went into Bilhah, his concubine. But here <clears throat> he recognizes that because of what was done there, there was a weakness and an instability in Reuben that would carry through. And we look upon the people of France as having some of those characteristics to this day. Uh, they do have some strengths, but they also have weaknesses in this area. He also comments here, as I referred to earlier, about Simeon and Levi. They're instruments of cruelty in their habita habitations. So uh, it was a very cruel act that they did. He says, O my soul, come not you into their secret, unto their assembly. My honor be not you united. In other words, we are not to follow the example of Simeon and Levi and what they did. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. So they killed the man who had raped, or had a relationship at least, with their sister. And then they tore down the city wall and took everything that was there and slew all the men who had not even done what the one had done. So God, or Jacob says, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So <clears throat> Simeon and Levi today <clears throat> are not nations as others are. They are scattered throughout all the tribes of Israel so that they cannot be a force and so that the cruel nature that they had would not be uh, in one spot or one area where it could be used against others. <clears throat> So they would not have a central place of power. Judah, you are he whom your brethren shall praise. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Uh, so Judah would be recognized as a leader among the people. Judah is a lion's whelp. They would be strong. A lion is called the king of the forest. So Judah would be prominent. Uh, a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Now he goes on to say that this type of language really had to do with Christ. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh, or Christ come. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people be. So Christ came as a Jew, and he's going to come back as the head Jew. And uh, the people gathered to him, the disciples, the apostles, the early church. The end-time church has gathered to him, and he is going to gather the end-time church to himself, as well as the nation when the millennium starts. Anyway, binding his foal to the vine and his ass's coat to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So Christ's blood was shed and our sins washed from him in blood or symbolized by wine, his blood being shed for us. So that is where we look is to Christ who was... Uh, a descendant through his mother of Judah. <clears throat>
through his father in heaven where the conception occurred, but through his mother from Judah. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. So he would be blessed, he would prosper, and he will throughout all eternity. So even here in the end time, uh, who do we look to? We look to Christ. We look to the head Jew. <laughs> uh, he is the one from whom blessing will come to us as the church when he is ready to confer those blessings here in the promised land. So Zebulun would dwell at the haven of the sea, be a haven for ships. We have felt that that was probably the Net- or Holland, uh, where they have reclaimed the sea and made harbors for ships there. Issachar, a strong ass between two burdens, uh, which would be Sweden, there between Norway and Finland. Uh, and he saw that rest was good in the land that it was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant to tribute. Uh, then Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. He'll set himself up as a judge. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And he is not named there in the tribes in Revelation when he talks about the 144,000. So, so Dan would put a negative judgment on his brothers and be a problem. Now, we had in past times and worldwide thought that Dan was primarily in uh, Ireland because of the rift between Great Britain and Ireland. But I've, I think I've come to see it differently. I believe that the primary nation of Dan is Germany. The Danube River goes through there. The name of Dan is all the way through. And it may even include Denmark, the mark of Dan upon Denmark. Uh, which is right there adjacent to Germany. Then who, in the end time here, has been uh, a snake to bite his brothers? It hasn't been Ireland. They've had a little bit of a problem with, with Great Britain, but not with the rest of us. But World War I and World War II were uh, fought at the hands of Germany, who was biting at all his brothers in Northwest Europe and even finally into the United States. So here in the last days, it has been Germany. So I don't think they're the Assyrian. I've come to believe that that's probably the Russians, for the most part, is the Assyrian and the king of the north. Uh, Germany certainly has no power right now to uh, start World War III and win it by any means and become the leader of the the New World Order. Uh, So it appears to me that Dan really is primarily Germany. a a tribe of Israel. So all you who thought you were uh, Gentiles of of the king of the north, I expect you're Israelites instead. And if you're German, maybe maybe that's why Germans have that uh, Zieg Heil approach to life in a way. Uh, It's because they are of Dan. But we can can be converted and get rid of the worst aspects of whatever we are genetically. That doesn't matter. Anyway, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. That may be the Swiss. Uh, They have tried to remain neutral, but they're going to be overcome. Uh, They can't remain neutral with what's coming. Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. That perhaps is Belgium. 
They're known for their Belgian chocolates and their fine confectionaries and dainty laces and so on, and royal dainties. Naphtha lies a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. That could possibly be Nor uh, Sweden because uh, we've had some great uh, diplomats come out of Sweden, like Dag Hammarskjöld, who was able to help forge peace between peoples. Uh, here's the one we really want to get to, though, <clears throat> because it's the firstborn and the one with whom blessings would come. Joseph, <clears throat> that would be Ephraim Manasseh, is a fruitful bough. Now, you're going to say things here about Ephraim Manasseh that weren't said about any of the others. What a blessing here. And who did God confer the blessing on and say, these are mine? Jacob put it on Ephraim and Manasseh. A fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. So where do things grow the best? Right near the water source. God said the promised land would be a land of much water there in Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. Uh, pools and lakes and rivers and so on, which aren't in the Middle East, but they are in America all the way across. A fruitful bough near the water whose branches run over the wall, just proliferate uh, in their growth. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Uh, here in the end time, uh, we've had Germany and Japan and others shooting at us and hated us. <clears throat> but his abode, abode in strength. Now, we look at some of the events of World War II, uh, where it appears that God did have to intervene, or we would have been overrun there on the beaches of Normandy. So God has protected our bow, abode, and strength. We've never had foreign enemies come truly and fight in our land, or at least not dominate the Japanese land or the Aleutians and a few little things like that. But certainly they did not dominate, <clears throat> at least yet. God did that. He was there at Normandy to fulfill this prophecy. For thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So where is Christ going to be involved? He is the stone. He is the shepherd of Israel. Where has the end-time church originated? In Joseph, in Ephraim, not even in Britain, but in the nation of the firstborn. This is where Christ established his end-time work not in that nation of Judah. The Jews there, whether they're Edomites or true Jews, are not with God. They're, they're, they have a pagan religion that is not of God. God began his true religion for the end time right here in Ephraim. He is the stone of Israel, and this is where he would do it. In the original promised land that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and Jacob told his son Joseph and his sons Ephraim and Manasseh's grandsons, it will be this land. Now, where is the stone of Israel today? The church of God began in this land. This is the original promised land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not in the Middle East. There's never been a true church of God in the end time established in the nation they call Israel. Even by the God of your Father, who shall help you, and by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, so land and sea and heaven, 
Most of this nation has lots of rain, lots of rivers, lots of lakes. Very fruitful. Breadbasket of the world, the, the middle of this nation. You see that in the land of Israel and Judah in the Middle East? No. They dig slanted wells under Syria in order to try to get water to live by. They hardly have any water. They don't have blessings from above and below. He said the promised land would contain everything you need. Israel imports over 60% of everything they use. We don't have to import anything except unless we just happen to want to. We had everything here we would need, just as Deuteronomy 7 says would happen. He'll bless you with blessings from heaven above and from the deep, from the ocean, the sea. We have bountiful blessings on the east coast, the west coast, all around us. And even up through Canada, which is a part of Israel as well. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb become many, many, many people. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They would receive blessing way beyond those of anyone else in the latter days. They shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. And Ephraim was made the strongest and the greatest and would have the greatest uh, inheritance from that. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. We thought that might be Norway because of the Vikings. I would like in some ways to think that part of Benjamin is north of us in Canada, simply because Joseph and Benjamin were the two sons of Rachel, and they were very, very close. And we have had a very close relationship in the end time with Canada. Uh, Ephraim, of course, being greater than Benjamin. So I don't know. Uh, Benjamin might be divided between Norway and Canada. That's a possibility. I don't know that. Even as Denmark and Germany could both be uh, of Dan and have some other mixture, too. There's some intermarriage and mixture of all the tribes, of course. But he's talking about the predominance. So these are the twelve tribes of Israel, or of Jacob, and this is it, that their father spoke to them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them uh, and told them to continue obeying God. So as we look at the end time today, we recognize that those who provided the Bible, who provided what we understand as Christianity at least, are in northwestern Europe and the United States and have spread somewhat into South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. But it is uh, that race of people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have been dominant here in the end time. Uh, that dominance is quickly being eroded. America will not be great, made great again in this end time. They will not be made great until Christ returns and gathers Israel to himself and makes them a great nation again in the millennium. Meantime, because we have come into this promised land, and been here approximately 430 years, and we have despised God and put God out of our churches and God out of our minds and worship false gods, we're about to be taken into a final captivity before Christ returns. The church has already gone into a final captivity of spiritual death by the sword and famine, spiritual famine and pestilence, and we have been decimated 
But God is going to gather 10% of us together and is going to do a strange work and wonder here in the end time through those whom He is going to call and stir to come to build a temple in Jerusalem. So we are in the land of Ephraim, and we are in the smaller area of the original promised land before it was expanded, and there God will do His great and strange work. So we have much to look forward to if we will put away our idols and serve God as Almighty God and put Him first and foremost in our lives. So Jacob had much meaning in his life and lessons to learn, but Jacob here in the end time, we have many lessons to learn from. How the church became apostate and was spewed out and we have to return to God, and how our nation is about to be destroyed so that it will, in its sorrow and frustration and death and destruction, come to worship God once again. So that's the whole point of Jacob, and it's the whole point of end-time prophecy. So here we are, having been blessed and not served God, and we're about to be destroyed, hopefully, so that we will repent in the long run. God destroyed the church, spiritual Israel, so that we would repent, and he could draw a 10% tithe to himself here to the original promised land in southern Utah and northern Arizona. So that's where we are today. Thank God that he has given us mercy and kindness and understanding that we might have opportunity to serve him here in the end times as the true sons of Jacob. And he tells us in chapter 41 of Isaiah, Fear not, you worm Jacob. I will come and I will bless the few men, it emphasizes, of Jacob here in the end time. 